I am a pastor. It said that, I think. Oh, it does. It says that right now. Okay. So I'm a pastor. Uh, and so when I, when I say that I care about people knowing about Jesus in the Bible, that might seem like, yeah, it's like you're, you're paid to care about that kind of stuff, right? And like, fair point. Uh, but I would like to believe, and, and I do believe, that even if I were not a professional Christian, uh, that I would care just as much about Jesus and his word and his people either way. And, and, and I would believe that to be true because it matters. Jesus matters. And not just to like the Sunday version of you, but like the Monday through Saturday version too. Of every aspect of life, the way we view ourselves, the way we view politics, the way uh, what we understand about who we are and what we are called to do in the midst of this crazy world. See, Jesus and Bible stuff are not just reserved for Sundays or 15 minutes in the morning. And this is why it matters so much about who and what we allow to influence us and how we are influencing the lives of others. Because we all have a measure of influence, right? Over others in formal and informal ways, in our relationships, in our workplaces, uh, within the church. We, we all have influence, uh, relational capital that we can uh, utilize in, in a number of ways. And that's awesome because on in the most positive sense, we can actually influence one another and be influenced by one another toward love and good deeds. Is that kind of cool? Like you're not stuck in your worst moments that we can actually learn from one another. Isn't that so great that God created us in that way that we are ever-changing creatures and we can influence one another? But that's also kind of scary, right? Because if we have the ability to influence one another, then that means we can also use that influence and be influenced knowingly and unknowingly in ways that are harmful, filled with misinformation and leads to separation from God instead of intimacy near him. It kind of reminds me of what Uncle Ben told Peter Parker, right? Or Aunt May, um, depending on which part of the Spideyverse you're in. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. So the question is, how will we use that power? How will we use the influence that we have? Now, I, I know and I hope that there are that not all of us in this room follow Jesus. Some of us are here and you might be curious about Jesus and this whole church thing. And if, that, and if that's you, I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, and, but for those of us who do follow Jesus, the question is, will I, will you use whatever measure of influence that you have in your life to draw people near to Jesus or to lead people away from him? Now, in our last few letters of scriptures, the last couple of years, if you went back to our podcast archives, you would, you would see a recurring theme in a number of the letters in the New Testament that we've gone over, which is the reality that there are false teachers who existed with the life of the early church. And, and they're not great people. Uh, and, and, and this has been such a reoccurring theme that it, it seems like, like, like it's a really big deal for some odd reason. Uh, if you go back and listen to Titus or Second Peter, like those were really big themes over and over and over again to talk about these false teachers. So the question is like, why? Why was it so important that multiple authors are hitting on the same concept over and over again to different churches across the ancient world? And so now false teachers matter 
but not because it's some type of boogeyman phrase meant to keep all Christians in line and in some perfectly square box of belief. False teachers matter, but not because it's about just that you would convince everyone to regurgitate all the same beliefs, whether they actually believe them to be true or not. Because you see, within every human heart, there's always been a temptation toward using whatever influence that you have toward what is not leading towards God. That is not in alignment with how God views good and bad, how he defines true truth versus false, life and death. But instead toward using our influence to define good and bad on our own terms. And that's, that's a kind of a prerequisite within the human condition. Our desire to become masters of our own fate, right? Like I get to say what's good. I get to say what's bad. And then we rub that off on the lives of others. And so with that, let's continue on in Jude tonight. Uh, we're in verses three and four. We're going to be going uh, a little bit slow early on in Jude. Um, so if you want to open up to Jude uh, one chapter, chapter one, verses three and four. If you're using one of the Mosaic Beautiful Blues, we're on page 1,127. And so Jude writes this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we see here, a letter that starts off with what he doesn't, what he wanted to talk about, but apparently it's not going to talk about. Wouldn't that be funny? You're like always getting text messages like that from a friend. Hey, I wanted to invite you to the movies, but instead I want to call you out on something really quick. <laughs> Cheery. <laughs> Am I still invited to the movie? You know, you're like, all right, cool. Let's, let's go into it. And so remember what we learned last week, Jude the half-brother of Jesus, a man who considered himself, according to uh, Jude 1, a bond slave of Jesus. And he is writing this letter to followers of Jesus throughout the ancient world. And so he begins this letter with a reminder of their truest identity, what we talked about last week. He said, I'm writing this, not to just a random assortment of humans, but specifically to those who are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus, the Messiah. And so now it seems like, like that's like a cool intro, like, yeah, sweet. And so now it seems like he isn't so, so much merging from one lane of traffic to the other on the toll road. And it's like he's hopping the divide entirely and going right against traffic. Like, wait up, what are you doing here? This is, oh, this is going to get hard. And so with that, let's jump in at verse three. So he says, here's what I wanted to write to you about. I wanted to write to you a simple blessing letter to encourage you in our common salvation. I wanted to use my influence to influence you with a simple encouragement. But I've discerned that's not what's best for y'all. What you needed is something a little bit different. 
Instead, I need to write to you about something of great importance, to contend for the faith. Now, that's like the theme for this letter. In fact, it's contend for the faith. It's, it's right there. So that's how you know it's a big deal because it's on the slide. Um, so contend for the faith. So, so we'll get back to that word contend in a bit, but first let's start off with the word faith. So which faith? Okay, which faith? We live in a, what's called a pluralistic society, which means there's like a huge variety of belief systems that any one of us can adopt or adapt from. You can kind of create your own now. You can mix and match like you're at a buffet line over at um, Animal Kingdom Lodge at Boma is my favorite buffet at Walt Disney World. And uh, so like like you you, you go and you can kind of load up your plate with whatever you want. Um, And so, should zebra domes, which are incredible, should zebra domes, they're not actually made of zebra, don't worry. Uh, should zebra domes be on the same plate as mac and cheese and African spiced meats with, uh, with a nice delicious salad? I don't know, but they are on my first plate at Boma's every single time. And there are six zebra domes on my plate every single time because you don't want to save dessert for last unless my kids are at the table, in which case I have to act right. Uh, but I, because I, I want to eat as many of those babies as I like. So, we t- when we go to a buffet, that's what you can do, right? You can kind of do your own thing. Do it up your way. And for many of us, that's how we learn about matters of faith and spirituality. You kind of like have, mm, I'm going to take some here and here and here. Well, Jesus, for sure, he kind of sounds cool. So you have him here and you take some of that from uh, Buddhism or Eastern spirituality, some of this from, uh, like, and you just kind of like do this like thing and you have your plate, and so is that the kind of faith that, that Jude is writing to contend for? If this verse were to make sense in our culture, it would sound something like contend for your faith. Contend for your truth. Don't let anyone try to knock you. But that's not what Jude's talking about here, right? But Jude isn't advocating for some individual understanding of faith that is created by you or me. He's not very much interested in that. He is calling us to contend for the faith. And just to make sure that we understand which particular faith he is writing about, he says, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so he's going to use two terms in this first sen- in the sentence right here that are tied to athleticism in the Greco-Roman world. The first of them is that word that we translate into contend. In Greek, it, uh, it is the same root word where we get the word at- to agonize over something. So when you agonize over something, think in a sports context, you're trying to run a race or you're doing a 5K on Castaway Key or you're, you're a marathon runner and, and you're just like super awesome like that. And so you... Nobody accidentally runs a marathon, right? I'm assuming so. I've never tried at all. But like for those who do, you meant to. You like typically sign up and you pay money to go and run. And so like you meant to do it. And so when you're running the race and you're like at that 20 mile marker, you are pushing through. At least I would imagine you would have to be pushing through, right? So you're agonizing. So that's that language. To contend is to agonize after something. You're gonna, you're, you're not like, Let's see what happens. Like you're gonna try and you're working really hard and diligently to make this thing a reality. And so contend. And so the second word that he uses here is the word delivered. That was once for all delivered to the saints. 
To be delivered in this context is to be handed over. So think of uh, delivery when Amazon Prime shows up at your door magically with your next uh, pile of goodies. Uh, Like they delivered that thing to you. You didn't create the thing, otherwise you wouldn't have ordered the thing. Instead, it was delivered to you. But specifically, it's like the language that uh, comes to my mind is the language of when somebody hands over a baton in a relay race. Right? So like, like they're agonizing and you're about to agonize in this relay race. You're not gonna like, let's just see what happens. You're gonna like, that person is sprinting and they are reaching out and you're in the zone and they're getting ready to hand it over. You don't get to like all of a sudden pull out a baton out of your shoe, which would be weird. Uh, you, and, and just start running. You don't get to pretend that a fake thing in your hand is the baton. It is handed over to you. It has been delivered to you. And in the deliverance of that thing, to you. You run, you run, and you can only run because the thing that was handed to you is in your hand now. It's been delivered into your hand. And so what he's getting at is that this is not a faith that is yours to create. You don't create this faith. You didn't like land on it. It didn't make sense all of a sudden. It's not ours to customize but it is ours to contend for. It's the same faith that has been handed down. It's the same faith that has been handed out through the saints. It's the same faith that has been handed down generation after generation by faithful women and men throughout the centuries, dating back 2,000 years now. It's not mine to make up. It's not ours to do to do anything except to contend toward, contend for. We preserve it. We embrace the difficulty. And that means it's gonna take some, some agonizing effort, like some real effort towards this end. It's not gonna happen just by osmosis, just by showing up in church um, on Sunday nights. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I just, uh, like all the spiritual light bulbs are just going off. It's gonna take real work and intentionality. We talked about this last week. Another way to phrase this would be to guard the gospel. We also talked about this, this uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon about uh, if you're going to uh, defend or to guard a lion, the best way to guard a lion is not to try to protect it with a pitchfork. It's to let the lion out of the cage and it's gonna do the work on its own. The best way to guard it is by letting it do its work. And so we allow this lion, which is Jesus and his good news, the gospel to both remind us of who we truly are and to allow it to flow through us to let others know who they are meant to be as well in light of who Jesus is. So it's gonna take intentionality. You're not gonna stumble into a marathon and then, pa- and then break the finish line. So we get this image that it's gonna take some real work, but it's gonna take real work and it's gonna be beautiful because it's gonna be built on the shoulders of giants through the generations. And so just as each generation has been called to guard the gospel in their hearts and within a biblical community, the same church today, us here tonight, we are called to the same effort. So the question is, what do we do with that? That's kind of a high calling, right? If we take this seriously, that's a lot. And if you're the kind of person that's like, well, I'm like really honest with myself and I'm not worthy towards that. Like, I can't do that. The the answer is you're not. You're not worthy. And if you're not worthy, I for sure am not worthy. And yet, according to Jude, this is what we are called to enter into. And it starts by knowing who we are, that we are called, that we are beloved, and that we are kept for Jesus the Messiah.
And so the invitation to run this race given to us by God was not given out based on your skill set or mine because we're so awesome and fast and filled with endurance. It's because he loved us without conditions. Because he said, you are mine. You are called, you are beloved, and now I will keep you. And that's it. It's not something that we figured out. It's not something that we created. And it's rooted in love, a love that is demonstrated through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago, a love that now calls us, you and I, his own and tells you who you truly are now. Because if you understand the gospel, but your identity is not shaped by the gospel, then you do not understand the gospel rightly. We are called to discover who we are in Christ. And so with all that as foundational, Jude continues into verse four and he starts getting into the heavy stuff, facing oncoming traffic. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so false teachers are coming up again. And so when we think of false teachers, uh, we can easily, going back to what I said before, we can easily think of, uh, well, that's just a phrase that's used by individuals who want to stifle any dissenting view. Or we can think of false teachers somehow, maybe it was a big deal back then in the early church, uh, but like really, is, is, we have a lot of problems in our world now. It's not like really one that we need to be thinking about. See, the reality is that the story of the scriptures reveals a consistent theme that there is one who attempts to proclaim truth that is other than God's truth, who sneaks in amongst God's people, who desires to lead them toward rejecting God as their master and Lord. We discover him in the early pages of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 we hear of a slithery false teacher who sneaks his way into the garden, seeking to distort God's desires and lead the man and the woman away from God's life, light, and freedom and toward death, darkness, and bondage. And the scriptures record that he, it says that he was, uh, that he was uh, cunning amongst all the beasts of the field. And so the image that you're given even then is that he is other than what is in the garden. See, the garden was meant to represent, the garden which was found in the area known as Eden was meant to represent God's dwelling place with humanity. It was supposed to be this, this cosmic heaven and earth spot where the very presence of God is meeting the very presence of humanity. Wild stuff. And when he leads and, and so then this, this serpent makes his way in. And what he does is he leads God's people away from their calling through false teaching and makes it so that they're disqualified from being able to walk with God. And the false teacher believes in that moment that he has won. But God's justice is poured out onto him when he proclaims that there's going to be hostility, amnesty between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of this slithery one. And he even says that her offspring is going to eventually crush the head of the snake, even though the snake is going to bruise the offspring's heel. 
And so we find out later that this crafty false teacher is the evil one that we often refer to now as the Satan. Satan is a Greek word, which means uh, the deceiver or the false teacher. So who are his offspring? There's going to be hostility between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the the slithery serpent. And so we find out quickly. In the next story, there are two children of Eve, Cain and Abel. And both are, uh, are living the farmer life and they both bring an, offer to, an offering to God, but Abel's is accepted and it's considered pleasing before God and Cain's is not looked at with favor. And so God talks to Cain. I think that's really kind. Like he, he goes and he wants to talk to him. He's not, he's not like, Cain, you're, you're just a poo-poo head. So like, get away. He like, he's like, I want to talk to you. I'm pursuing you. And what he says to him is so revealing both about God and the state of humanity as a whole. He says, Cain, Cain, there is sin and it is crouching at the door of your heart like a monster looking for someone to devour. He's warning him. And you need to become a master of it before it masters you. And so Cain allows the monster in and he goes to the field and he takes the life of his brother. And so in that, we begin to see the inklings of the offspring of the serpent. It's not that Cain was literally the birth child of of Satan. It is that he has become an agent of the evil one. He's become the offspring of the serpent in his natural human sinful state. And that's not just Cain. That's the state of all of humanity. Our broken and stained hearts are captivated by the serpent, by his false teachings, that we get to become our own gods. Think of like every single movie. How often is it? No, no, no. Find yourself not in what you believe about yourself, but in what somebody else says about you. That's like so the antithesis of our cultural moment, right? It's I get to define me. I get to decide my own fate. But see, God desires to inform us of who we truly are. And, and even in that, God continues to call individuals and eventually the entire a people group, the nation of Israel, to be his people. And that this people group would be what he declares a holy nation, a royal, a nation of priests who would proclaim his truth to the nations. And as he blessed them, they would bless the world. In other words, what God is doing through the nation of Israel is he is desiring to bring the Eden ideal into existence through this particular people group. But continually in crawls the snaky one, continuing to wrap himself around the hearts of broken, distorted humans, creeping in amongst God's people, bringing false teachings and wicked ways of living to the point that the nation of priests eventually become a nation of false teachers. And yet, God continues to pursue humanity. Isn't that wild? I mean, how many times over would humanity need to mess up before you give up on them, if you were God? Probably a lot sooner than God, because he hasn't and he won't. He continues to pursue humanity until finally the true offspring of the woman arrives, the snake crusher, the awaited one known as the Messiah, And he, Jesus, sees the snake's 
invasive influence over the people of Israel. In fact, he even says to Israel's teachers, the Pharisees, what does he say to them? He calls them at one point, you brood of vipers, you children of a snake. Now they might've been thinking that they were teaching the truth, but they were literally hostile against the snake crusher. Isn't that wild? There was hostility. And see, even then, God still loves, which is exactly what Jesus does on the cross, which is just so cool that while the serpent bruises his heel by influencing created human beings to take the creator of the cosmos onto a cross, he bears that sin and all sin on himself and then says, it is finished. And when he raises from the dead, the serpent is found fangless. And God's people, his church, this new holy priesthood, this new holy nation, we are restored. If you are a follower of Jesus, this should matter a great deal to you because this is your story. There's nothing more important in your life than, what, than this reality that you have been redeemed by his blood, that you were cleansed by his words, that you were restored by his truth. And so then the snake has been defeated. And yet, look at the newspaper. There is still evil afoot. He is still active. He's still prowling around like a wounded lion. He's later on going to be uh, used in Revelation to be described as a chaos dragon looking to invade God's people using his greatest weapon, humanity. Us. We are Satan's greatest weapon. And so when Jude writes to believers in this particular time, in this particular place, place, this is exactly what Jude has in mind when he writes about this invasive species who has crept in unannounced. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are offspring of the serpent who have yet to be redeemed and restored and who are designated for this condemnation. He says they are ungodly people. Now, when you hear that word ungodly, you might think of uh, they did a few bad things or uh, however Jude defines bad things, they're doing bad things in the way that he defines bad things. But it's not just about that they're doing some bad stuff. What he is saying is that they belong to the ungodly serpent. They are agents. Think like James Bond is as a secret agent. Like these false teachers are agents of the enemy. And so what are they doing? They are acting like the serpent. They are perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. Now that word sensuality, uh, that doesn't just mean lustful sensuality, although it can mean that. It means specifically license. License. When you have a license to do something, you, you can go and do that thing, right? When you have a driver's license, it means that you can go and, and drive a car. And what they are doing is they are talking up God's grace and saying that, that God's grace now gives you license to do whatever you want, whatever you think is best. God's grace is for you. You and Jesus are cool. Keep doing your thing. You got this. But this 
this doesn't accentuate the gospel. It actually cheapens the gospel. It breaks the gospel down at its core. And this connects to what he's going to say next, that these false teachers, what do they do? They deny our only master and Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And so their words, their actions reveal that they don't believe that Jesus is actually truly master over their lives. Their words, their words betray them. Their actions betray them. Now, the words masters and master and Lord, that sounds like a phrase that you kind of reserve for when you're watching PBS Masterpiece or something. But these are titles uh, used for authority. When somebody has authority over you, they are a master or a Lord. And for many of us, we might call ourselves Christians. We might say that we are Christians. And if we were to answer why we believe that's true, we'd be like, because I like Jesus. Uh, We think he's interesting. We like some of his sayings, the way that he lived life. We like some of the things that he offers, that whole eternal life thing. Like, that's a major thumbs up. Uh, Belonging, I want to belong. I want comfort. Uh, I want to be known and be loved. And and, And so that's what we mean. And those aren't bad things by any stretch. Those are good things. But yet when Jesus says what it looks like to begin to become one of his disciples, he says, My disciples pick up their cross daily and follow. They deny themselves and follow me even to the point that it is death to self. And so to make Jesus our master and to become his servant, like how Jude, remember how he even talks about himself at the beginning of the letter. He says, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus. He is my master. He is my Lord. That means he gets to call the shots over my life. And what Jude is now saying is that these false teachers, they are not saying the same stuff. They do not believe that that Jesus gets to call the shots over their own lives. And so the grace of God that they are talking about is not freedom. It's not freedom from the snake. It's actually freedom to live however you want. But that freedom only keeps you ensnared to the snake. It's freedom The freedom that we have in the gospel is freedom to live apart from brokenness, live apart from the bondage of the snake, to be united and attached to Jesus. And so this is what Jude means when he is talking about that this is who he is. He belongs to Jesus. Wild, right? Again, like we talked about last week, that the brother of Jesus, instead of first starting by, he's my big bro, he starts by saying, I belong to him. Not many siblings say that about their siblings, right? Because he's not talking about his sibling anymore. He is talking about the risen savior, the word of God made flesh. And so he's like, I belong to him. And see, when we make Jesus our master and our Lord, it doesn't mean, uh, and that that can be scary, right? If, If we're taking it seriously, it should be a little bit scary. Sorry, it should be. But then we can look and discover that for Jesus to become our true Lord, our true master, it doesn't mean that he is, he is planning on thwarting us by um, taking advantage of our weaknesses. Instead, what he does is he says, hand me all of them and I'll carry them for you. Not so that he can then enslave us uh, so that we can discover our unity with him, but so that we can be free in him to discover our unity in him. See, this is what these false teachers who had crept in were doing. And this is what we're going to get at in the coming weeks. They were, they were slithering their way in. 
they had snuck in unannounced. And it's important to note, though, that this, that, that Jude would not have said that these false teachers were the ultimate enemies. In fact, we discover in the scriptures that our enemy is not one of flesh and blood. It's not the false teachers. It's not, uh, it wasn't Nero who was pretty, pretty awful towards Christians. And soon after this, within five years, is going to um, begin a mass genocide of Christians. Nero's not, Nero's not the enemy. Humans aren't the enemy. Well, terrorist groups are not the enemy. The worst people, the worst perpetrators of evil in the history of humanity are not ultimately the enemy, according to the scriptures. But they have been wrapped around by the evil one and their broken, distorted hearts are simply accentuated by his desires. They are warped. They become agents of him. And see, the serpent is the enemy. Principalities of darkness are the enemy. And see, what Jude desires to do is, is to ex- express the fact that these slithery ones have been manipulated and distorted to begin to falsely teach and confuse us humans to live apart from God's true grace, to refuse to make Jesus our master and our Lord. So these false teachers, they're not the enemy, but they are deceived. Just like you and I can be deceived. And so the question is, how do we, how do we contend for the faith? How do we guard the gospel? And so are you starting to see why Jude would dedicate this letter to illuminating facts about these false teachers? Not because uh, they were just some dissenting voice, but because knowingly or, or unknowingly, what they were doing was that they were leading followers of Jesus away into bondage saying it's God's grace when actually, no, it's the serpent's tricks. And so in this letter, what we're gonna discover from Jude is much about these false teachers and much more about what it looks like to contend for the faith. This truth that you and I are called to guard the gospel, but not by fighting culture wars, not by owning people groups with a different worldview, but by guarding the gospel in our own hearts and guarding the gospel in the lives of one another and in our biblical community because you or I on our own can and will be deceived. But we are a whole lot stronger together because where we gather together, the presence of Jesus does incredible things. So what we need is to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. Use the influence that you have over yourself to preach the gospel over yourself. And then use the influence you have over others to preach the gospel over them. Because we are going to be tempted to revert back to self. To revert back to, I get to define good and bad on my own terms. I get to, I should call the shots. I've earned that. But when we are reminded of who we are in the gospel, we are protected. We are guarded by the lion. 
And so when we are anxious, we get to remind ourselves and one another that Jesus has come to comfort weary hearts and minds. When we are believing that our way is better than God's, we get to remind ourselves and one another that Jesus is now and once and forever our true Lord and master. That when we are feeling isolated and alone, we get to be reminded by ourselves and one another that Jesus has come and promised that he will not forsake us till the end of the age. And that is really, really good news. That's good news when you had a hard conversation with the boss at work. It's good, good news when, you're, uh, when everything seems to be going wrong at home. It's good news when, when you turn on the TV or you look on social media and the world is just going crazy. It is good news when we are feeling alone and isolated, when our anxiety and depression is feeling like it's up to here. See, the serpent is crafty. And yes, his greatest weapon might be humanity, yes. But here's the really good news. It's not a competition. Because if we are united with Jesus, our greatest weapon against the serpent is him. And he's really strong. And it's not up for debate. There's not like some, in the the end of times, it's going to be like, I wonder which way this battle is going to go. Lion or dragon? Lion or dragon? I don't know. It's going to be very uneventful because it's lopsided. And we are on the side of the one who wins. And what his greatest desire for us to do is to find who we are in him and through him. And so I want to invite the band to come on up right now. And I want to invite all of us to simply close your eyes and take a couple breaths. And, And I want you to ponder for a second. In what ways do you need to be preaching the gospel to yourself? In what ways are you, uh, are you hurting right now? If you know and love Jesus, you are his. You're his. You are loved. You are kept. You are called his So would you just rest in that tonight? Father, I pray right now for everyone in this space tonight who needs desperately to be reminded of who they are in you. Lord, would you remind us that we are yours. For anyone who is here tonight and doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would be working through the power of your spirit on their hearts, even tonight, to to draw them near to yourself, to invite them into relationship with you, to encourage them and to uplift them, to remind them that they don't have to be in bondage to, to the hurts and the pains and the loneliness and the frustrations of life, but that they can now be united to you. Lord, would you draw us near to you? Would you remind us of who we are in you? Lord, would you help us to be a community where we preach the gospel to ourselves often, daily, that we'd be reminded of who we are in you and what you have called us to do. Lord, we don't have the strength to contend for the faith on our own. But through you, we have, we have 
a power that is beyond imagined. Through you, we have the ability to be strong and united in the face of a slippery serpent. So Lord, would you just encourage your kids tonight? Lord, we need you desperately. You're good and kind and faithful. I pray that we would rest in you tonight. That we would respond now in genuine worship before you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.